Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're continuing on in our series. We're looking at verses 6 through 9 this morning, although we'll be reading 3 through 9 for, for context. But again, that's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, and we'll read that in just a moment. But first, I want to ask you a question. How does the future affect the present? What sorts of things in the future change how you think and how you behave now? There are a lot of things in this life that alter how we live from day to day. Some examples. If a student has a paper due or a final exam the next day, what should he be doing? How should he be spending the current day? Well, he better spend it studying or writing his paper or he's going to fail. If you're leaving for a vacation soon, how might that affect you? Well, you might be more diligent and more productive at work knowing you're about to get a break. Or you might take the opposite approach. You might be coasting into that vacation because you know a break is on the way. If I know that Hannah, my wife, is going to make one of my favorite meals for dinner, I'm going to be much more excited and more productive at work. That's going to give me the extra little bit I need to work hard at the end of the day. Knowing what is to come has a definitive effect upon our hearts and upon our minds. Upcoming good things have a vitalizing effect on us. The joy on what is to come often helps us to work harder, distract us from trials, and focus our minds and our hearts. But so many of the things that motivate us are fleeting and uncertain. You might make it to that beach vacation only for you to sit inside all week because it rains every single day. The meal you are so excited and waiting on because it's one of your favorites might be ruined by a sudden power outage. And that definitely isn't something that happened a few weeks ago. The future can often disappoint us. But as believers, there are future events and promises which we can be certain about. The future has a huge impact on how we live our lives now in the present. The fullness of our future salvation must drive us to live lives of praise to God now. Because none of His promises can ever fall short. In fact, they're going to far exceed anything we can possibly imagine. So because Christ is coming back, we must rejoice. That's the big picture, the thesis, if you will, for this sermon. Because Christ is coming back, we must rejoice. So let's read our text. And as I said, we're focusing on verses 6 through 9, but we're going to read 3 through 9. So starting in verse 3 of 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
So in verse 6, the ESV says, in this. And before we can really address verses 6 through 9, we need to make sure we understand verses 3 through 5 and what the this is referring to. Now, you might remember from last week that we are in the middle of one long Greek sentence. So Peter is referring to what he talked about in verses 3 through 5, because technically that's all part of the same sentence. Well, the focus of those first few verses was on the eschatological hope of believers. Peter explained how we have been born again to a living hope and a rich inheritance in Christ. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Additionally, Peter explained that God is guarding our inheritance to keep it safe till we get there, till we arrive in glory in order to take possession of it. But God is also guarding us so that we will make it to our inheritance. God is guarding us and our inheritance in order to bring us into our full salvation. Therefore, going back to verse 6, we are to rejoice as we consider our rich inheritance and the assurance God gives us that we will actually make it to glory to lay hold of it soon. So we rejoice in this hope that we have. But we do not yet have the fullness of our salvation. Also, things are not always that great in this life. We get sick. Our plans fall apart. We are persecuted for our faith. Life is hard. So the natural objection to the great future hope that we have is that the present seems to be anything but this glorious future hope. So Peter, knowing that we have a natural inclination to object, to say, but what about now? Why are we suffering? He's going to tell us something that we need to hear amidst suffering and amidst trials. So the first of two points for this morning is that because Christ is coming back, we must rejoice in our suffering. So it's just expanding on that thesis of we must rejoice. Well, this is the first way we must rejoice in our suffering. Have you ever heard the line or the phrase, anyone say this, they're too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good? You ever heard someone say that? Well, I'm going to argue that the opposite is actually true. The greatest theologians in church history have been the most heavenly minded people. And Peter, the author of this epistle, is a prime example of this. He had one eye on glory continually. He has just expanded upon the heavenly realities that await us. And yet he still knows perfectly well what we face in this life. We are elect exiles sojourning in this world. That's what the first two verses of this book talked about. He knows what we're going through. And yet the natural objection for the saint dwelling on the future realities and how glorious they are is why we have to wait for that full salvation. Why we have to wait to lay hold of the fullness of of our salvation. Why do we suffer if we have such a rich inheritance awaiting us? Well, suffering is real, and Christians do not escape suffering in this life. And Peter knew this. He acknowledges that we have been grieved by various trials. Our sufferings cause real and deep grief. There's a pain that comes with suffering. We get sick, we're often weak. People die. Over time, our bodies just stop behaving like they once did. And yet Peter says we can still rejoice despite those difficulties in life. Well, how is that possible, Peter? Well, Peter gives two reasons for rejoicing in suffering. 
First, the period of suffering and trials is but a short while. And second, God utilizes trials in our lives in order to refine us and to strengthen our faith. And we're going to address both of those things in that order. So first, suffering is a short while. God is completely sovereign over all things, including everything that comes to pass in history. He has numbered your days and He has even determined the times and places you will live. He has determined the exact time and manner of your death. And while that may be terrifying in one sense, it should also be very freeing and comforting. You are not stuck in a life of indefinite or limitless suffering. Our frailties, our trials are temporary. They are only temporary. The days of your suffering are numbered. And the close of each new day draws you one step closer to the finish line. There's no trial or illness which God has not planned for you. Anything you go through is part of God's plan. And because of that, God has also given you the grace to endure each and every trial and pain that comes your way in this life. And as the Lord teaches us humility and faith through these trials, we learn better how to think about this time of suffering on the earth. So that hopefully we can repeat with the author of Psalm 90, Moses. So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And so as we suffer, we are sustained by the grace of God and we can praise Him for it. He has promised that it is only for a short while that we are to endure the struggles of this life. And we can also rejoice because while the suffering is for a little while, our time in glory will be never-ending. And I want you to see and to grasp that concept. We suffer for a little while, but we will be with Christ forever thereafter. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Our present afflictions are as nothing compared to the rich inheritance that we will one day enjoy. And later on in this very book, in chapter 5, Peter writes, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We suffer for a little while, but we have been called to an eternal glory in Christ. Soon these momentary afflictions, these trials, will give way to unceasing joys. So are you suffering now? Are you conflicted Are you oppressed? Are you lonely? Keep clinging to Christ and His grace. Keep looking to Him because even now, the light of His glory is growing as the set time for your trials is drawing to an end. And as the period of suffering draws to a close, there's coming a new day, the glory of which will outshine all the darkness that came before it. And I know this for certain, that the glory of the Son of Righteousness will shine far brighter than all the stars of this universe put together. The time is short. Well, the second reason to rejoice in suffering is that the Lord uses suffering in our lives to refine us, to shape us. 
We see the beginning of this explanation in verse 7. You have undergone trials so that, or in order that, the genuineness of your faith might be proven. This is a purpose clause. There is a definitive purpose that God has in walking us through trials in this life. He is not indifferent to our pain, nor is He unable to rescue us from difficulty. Rather, we have to remember Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good for those who love God. We have to understand and to accept that no matter how difficult it may be, that every difficult thing in our lives has been sent to us by God for our good. Listen to James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So through suffering, God disciplines and trains us to be more like Christ and to help us turn away from sin and from immaturity. Thomas Brooks, who's a Puritan, wrote, Afflictions, they are but our father's goldsmiths who are working to add pearls to our crowns. Have you ever thought about trials in that way? We want to see the struggle as evil, but God is the one who leads us to that struggle, to that trial for our good. And what a remarkable way to see affliction as a goldsmith adding jewels to our crown. And this is the example that Peter gives. He likens the sanctification process to goldsmithing. Metalsmiths refine and they purify gold to make it as unpolluted and as pure as possible. The higher the purity, the higher the value, the more precious it is. And yet for all their work, even the finest gold is not eternal. It will wear down. It will still be imperfect and it can be easily destroyed. But your soul is of far more worth than the most valuable gold in existence. Your soul will continue on forever. It's never going to be destroyed. And when the refining process in this life is finished, your faith will be proven genuine. So if a good metalsmith delights in the gold when it is refined even though it cannot be entirely pure, and though it perishes, how much more will the Father delight in you and your genuine faith? This is a lesser to greater argument. The goldsmith is proud of his imperfect work. How much more will your Father rejoice over you, the work of his hands that is perfect? But what is the end goal of this testing and refining process? When our faith is tested and proven genuine, Peter tells us that it will result in praise, glory, and honor. These are the blessings and the rewards that believers will receive when their faith is proven genuine at the end. And this connects us back to the first reason to rejoice in suffering. We may rejoice for, or we may suffer for a time now, but soon we will receive praise, glory, and honor for enduring trials here and now. So part of the rich inheritance we await in glory is the praise and honor God will give to us for enduring these trials. And here's where we have to be well-rounded in our knowledge of Scripture. We have to combat legalism in our own hearts and in our minds and in the church. Believers want to stomp out any idea of earning our salvation, and rightfully so. But in our haste to combat legalism, 
We often forget that Scripture tells us to store up treasures in heaven. Don't earn salvation, earn treasures. Paul tells Titus that we are to be a people zealous for good works, excited, energetic, eager to do good works. And then James, continuing this idea of blessing, says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We are in a testing ground for our faith. And we can rejoice because through Christ we can endure every trial. And if we endure every trial, then we will receive the glory of our inheritance on the last day. And as we receive the crown of life, we may then take it and we may lay it down at Christ's feet, the one who enabled us to endure every trial. So our current suffering may only be for a short time, but it has an eternal, unending purpose. We are being prepared for glory through these temporal afflictions. God is sculpting us. He is training us. He is purifying us so that we will be ready to take hold of the blessings of eternity. And soon we will all die or Christ shall return. One of the two is going to happen. And I tell you that unlike the world which must dread that day, for you that day will be the entrance into a far more glorious world than you can imagine. And so even as we suffer, we may look to our glorious future for strength and for hope. Because that future must, it does, it will give you hope and joy now, even in suffering. So second point is that because Christ is coming back, we must rejoice in Christ. So this passage is saturated with what's called the already not yet tension. Now, if you don't know what that is, the already not yet concept is that we already have many things as a result of our faith. We are justified in Christ already. The Spirit has already sealed us for glory. We already have the fruit of the Spirit. We get to live in the church with other believers and fellowship with them and worship with them. We are already new creations in Christ. And we can have peace and joy in our trials now. But there are other things which are promised in the future, and therefore we do not yet have them. We are waiting on the full completion of our sanctification where we will be made perfect. We have to wait for a new earth to walk on, and we have to wait for glorified bodies to walk on it with. So many of the concepts we've talked about in the first point match this not yet concept. Most of the first point was the not yet aspect. Peter concluded verse 7 by talking about the praise and glory and honor we will receive at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it is that future event, the coming of Christ, that leads Peter on a digression to talk about the joy we already have in Christ now. And therefore, in this point, that's the main focus, is that we are addressing the already and that already not yet tension. And Peter addresses this already by using another theme. So point was all about point one was all about rejoicing because of the hope of future glory. Now he focuses on sight to talk about the present blessings we have in Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of verse seven is about the appearing of Christ, the being made visible of Christ. When we physically see Christ face to face, we will enter into the fullness of our salvation. And that's really the final hope of the believer is to behold God 
face to face. We call this in theology the beatific vision. We will be like Christ because we will see Him as He is. Seeing the glorified and the risen Savior is what will transform us completely. And so sight is the future hope we just talked about. And yet it is not any sight, seeing anything that will change us, but seeing Christ that will change us. But now Peter, in verse 8, turns us back to the present. We do not yet physically see Christ, yet we love Him. If you look at this verse, you'll notice there's some repetition to this idea. Again, Peter highlights our lack of sight a second time in verse 8. Twice in one verse, Peter highlights our lack of physical sight now. But despite the fact that we cannot see Christ, we love Him. Even though we don't see Him now, we believe in Him. Though He is not visibly present with us, we rejoice in Him as if He was. I think what we see here is the establishment of stronger faith in us now as a result of that which is to come. So the not yet physical vision of Christ inspires the and creates the joys we have now in the already. The future promises create a present reality. And this really adds to the list of contrasts Peter has already presented. First in this passage, he presented or he contrasted the present realities and the future promises. Second, he contrasted the seen and the unseen. And third, Peter's pointing us to a contrast between spiritual and physical sight. So one day we will see Christ with our physical eyes. But for now, we see Christ through eyes of faith. And we see this pattern for us very well in the book of Hebrews, especially in chapter 11, where sight becomes a major theme of that chapter. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah trusted in God and so saw with spiritual eyes that which he could not yet physically see. He could not yet see the coming flood, and yet he had been told about it. And so he believed and looked to God with eyes of faith. Faith is what provided Noah with his sight, not his eyes. Then in verse 8 of Hebrews 11, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that housed foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So both Abraham and Sarah trusted in God when their physical sight gave them no reason to trust in God, when their physical sight gave them no hope. Their spiritual eyes were open to see the riches of the Lord and His promises. Their trust in the promises of God gave them the joy and the hope they needed to endure. Faith gave the vision needed to endure the trials of life, even as their eyes deceived them. 
And then lastly, going to verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Listen to this part. For he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses saw God with eyes of faith and so counted all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. There was the future promise of glory, but it broke through into his day as joy. Moses was looking forward to the future reward from God rather than the reward from man. He saw the pleasures of Egypt right in front of him. If you wanted to go somewhere to live it up, Egypt at that time was the place to be. And he was in the royal family. He could have done whatever he wanted. And yet he chose to ignore that because his faith gave him an eternal perspective. The way in which we must view the world is no different today. We may have to wait until glory to see with our physical eyes, but through faith we see Christ now. Living by faith is the same thing as having spiritual sight. And it is this, it is this spiritual sight Beholding our Savior here and now in this life that leads us to joy beyond what human words can describe. And that's not me trying to be clever by using superlatives. Peter himself tells us that we may rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. One commentator says that though we do not see Jesus, we experience something in advance of the great and indescribable glory of that coming day. The future glory has broken into the present and has changed us forever. Seeing is not believing. But to believe in Christ is to see with a clarity that no eye on earth can attain. The eyes of faith are not bound by time or by the physical creation. By faith, our souls truly witness a foretaste, a shadow, or a picture of our coming inheritance. Through the eyes of faith, we can see Christ walking with us now. And so how could we not rejoice with a joy that is beyond words? Knowing the life with Christ that awaits you in glory, how could your heart not be moved to praise and worship? As Jesus said to Thomas in John 20, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So how can you be blessed before you can even physically see Christ? Because to believe in your heart that Christ is yours is to see more clearly than your eyes ever could. And therefore, we can rejoice in the sight, the spiritual sight that we have been given through faith, through being made alive again. Let's conclude and wrap all this up. At the very end of verse 8, Peter directs us back again to this future hope we have. Because of the work of Christ, your future glory is secure. His incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and glorification have ensured the full salvation of God's elect. So often we think of future events as as things which have not yet been done. I mean, that's normally the definition, right? But the oddity of our faith is that the atoning work of Christ has already occurred. There's nothing left to be done to secure your faith is completely and perfectly accomplished in Christ. 
Well, how can you know that? How can you actually believe that? Because the glorified Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's not in the grave. He's not in a fallen and imperfect body. He is risen. He is glorified and He is reigning. And therefore, the fullness of your salvation, including your justification, sanctification, and glorification, are guaranteed by the risen and the reigning Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we rejoice because the fullness of our salvation awaits us. Our present joy is anchored to the future certain salvation we have been promised. The word obtaining, at least in the ESV, is in the present tense. We somehow already possess our future promises, and yet the fullness of our salvation is a future promise we're still waiting on. So the effects and results of our future salvation are so glorious that the future alone cannot hold them. The glorious salvation we're waiting on has in some way broken through into our present moment. That is part of why Peter calls our joy inexpressible in verse 8. The present foretaste of glory which we experience through faith is otherworldly. It is not of this fallen world. It is something which cannot be fully explained or categorized. It is not something visible to the human eye. We do not know exactly what it will be like or when it will be. All we know is that it will far exceed any label, description, or anticipation that we may have of glory. There's a reason we begin every worship service with a call to worship. A call to worship is a command to praise the Lord. We praise Him for His goodness, for His holiness, and for His mercy in Christ. The Lord is infinite in power, beauty, and wisdom. And therefore, the reasons we have to praise Him are likewise infinite. That also means that our God, who is the source of all joy, is able to give us a joy far exceeding anything we can imagine. And even now, we have a sufficient joy in this life in every trial. But we are looking forward. We are waiting for the day when we will have a far greater and a perfect joy. Because soon our time of suffering on this earth will end, and then we will walk with Christ in a perfect joy forevermore. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for giving us joy. Thank You for sculpting us through suffering. Thank You for leading us to rejoice even in suffering. It is so contradictory to what the world says. It makes no sense to the world. And yet through the eyes of faith, we have every promise given to us through Christ already. So Lord, help us to look to those promises and help us to have a great joy in them. Lord, grow joy in our hearts. Give us a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory as we await the full salvation of our souls in glory with You, where every eye will see You physically and spiritually. Lord, point us forward. Give us joy. We ask it in Christ's name.